Welcome to the Community Fellowship Podcast, your way to stay connected with biblically-themed messages, discussions, and interviews from Community Fellowship in East Bernard, Texas. Learn more about our church at the cfeb.church website, check us out on social media at CF East Bernard, or attend an in-person service at 635 Main Street in East Bernard. We are a local church that works to make the love of Christ for all humanity known to our community and the world. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this week's content. Well, good morning, church. I just want to tell you that we are super thrilled to be here. We are so excited to be a part of this community. Um, we, we're just ecstatic. Uh, and we're also really glad to be back from family camp, although New Mexico was wonderful because we didn't have to deal with this 100-degree heat. Um, so we didn't miss that. I'm just telling you that right now. Um, and you know, at the last few weeks, I have just been praying and asking the Lord, like, what, what, would it, what would our beginning of our relationship together, what would the Lord want for me to speak about and to talk about? And, and I kept on coming back to the, the early church in Acts. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the things that the early church was committed to. But before we do that, I want to make sure that we have the same definition of church, all right? Because you may have grown up like me in the church, and this was the church, right? You know where I'm going with this, right? This is the church, see the steeple, open the doors, see all the people. Yeah, you knew where I was going, you knew where I was going, right? The problem with the song, it's a cute song, it's a fun song, but the problem with the song is that it primarily makes the church a place instead of a people, right? The church is a people. In fact, I'm going to give you a working definition. The church is all the people who have through faith trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ and are now members of God's family and his kingdom. Let me, let me repeat that again. The church is all the people who have through faith trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ and are now members of God's family and his kingdom. And the reason I want to start here is because if you just listen to a lot of times what we say about church, it's a lot more of a place. But think of some of the comments or some of the questions you might ask, right? Hey, are you going to church? Are you guys ready for church, right? All these different expressions that we're so used to saying that primarily makes the church a place instead of a people, but the church is always, always, always a people. And just before we kind of get really started this morning, I just want to stop and to pray over the church. All right, let me pray for us. Father God, I just am so grateful and thankful to be in the midst of your church, your people those that are here that have expressed their faith and trust in who Jesus is. And that's why we're gathered together, Lord, because we're so grateful for what he's done for us as we've celebrated already in communion. This morning, God, would you just speak to us together? Would you speak to us as the church, as your people, God, that are in love with Jesus, God, that are part of this family and are part of his kingdom? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, Daniel Rudiger was from a lower middle class, uh, was a lower middle class kid from the outskirts of Chicago. But his love for Notre Dame Irish football came from his dad, who weekly gathered the family around the television set to watch the old gold and blue. And it was this sacred ritual that would instill this lifelong dream into young Daniel's heart to play for the famed fighting Irish. In high school, Daniel was actually quite good. He was a cornerback. And junior and senior year, he actually had the most tackles on his entire team. But at 165 pounds, he wasn't quite Notre Dame material. Although he was physically underwhelming, and later on they would find out that he actually was diagnosed with dyslexia, Daniel committed himself to studying at Indiana's Holy Cross College, holding on to the possibility that if he got straight A's, that after four semesters he might be able to transfer over to Notre Dame. So he worked diligently to keep his grades up, along with working as a groundskeeper on the Notre Dame campus. And after being rejected three times by Notre Dame, he was finally accepted as a student. Now, it would take even harder work to make the team. Walk-ons were actually encouraged at that time by the Notre Dame staff, but it was absolutely not easy. Daniel pushed himself harder and harder every week to make the team. And finally, his tenacity paid off. He made the team. However, making the team is completely different than getting to play on the field, right? As a senior, though, on November 8th, Daniel got his one and only shot as a part of the fighting Irish defense. He played two downs to end the game, never to walk on the field again. What diligence, what commitment, what devotion to be able to play for this team. And this morning, as we begin our series in Acts, chapter 2, 42-47, we are going to look at the first of four things that the, the, the author Luke describes the early church being devoted to, and that's the apostles' teaching. So as we do, I want to show each person in here three truths of the apostles' teaching that we must be committed to as a church as we share the gospel with our neighbors, and three clear results to responding to that message. All right, so let's turn together in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at this passage first, and then we're going to dive into another one. I'm just going to warn you right now, there's going to be a lot of reading, all right? We're going to be a lot of scripture today, okay? So here we go, verse 42, chapter 2 of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So as we said, the early church devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Now, so that we can understand exactly what this idea of devoted means, I want to make sure that we kind of give the definition for devoted. Here's what it means here in this text. It means to persist in. So it means that the, the church was constantly, continually committed to these four things together as a community. And my prayer for us is that by the end of this series, these next few weeks, that we'll be able to analyze for ourselves, are we as a church, as a people of God, are we committed to these four things as well? Okay, so now I want you to flip back to the beginning of chapter two, all right? So you don't have to flip too far. You just got to go back to the beginning of chapter two. And this is where we're going to read this whole section. Again, it's lengthy. Hang in there with me, all right? So verse one is where we're going to start. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently from the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, 
that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I'm going to promise you right now, I'm not normally going to read a whole passage of scripture like that. All right. I know that got really long. It got really lengthy. All right. But it's important because of where we're going to go today, because of what we're going to talk about today. So let me give you a little context of what's going on. You might remember that when this happens, the uh, disciples are all gathered together, and mostly about, probably about 120 of them are gathered together because Jesus has told them, given them instruction whenever he went and ascended to be at the right hand of God, he's given them the instructions to wait in Jerusalem for the gift that the Father is going to give them. And so that's exactly what the disciples are doing. That's exactly what the apostles are doing. They are waiting in Jerusalem for the gift that the Father has promised. Now, I think another important note is this very beginning. It says that on the day of Pentecost. So let's kind of talk a little bit about what Pentecost is. So Pentecost, the word actually means 50th. And it's 50 days after the uh, Passover. And it's actually a time of harvest. And I know from talking with a couple of you guys that it's harvest season right now. And I'm sure you are like, I can't wait for this to be done, at least to the guys I've talked to already. They're like, I can't wait for this to be done. But I bet you, I bet you that once it is done, I bet you're pretty excited. You're, You're just ready to celebrate. And that's exactly what the day of Pentecost was for the Jews. It was actually one of the festivals. It's also called the day of first fruits or the feast of weeks. But it's a celebration of God bringing the harvest about in the life of the Jews. Okay? So, this means that uh, for, the, for, the, for these guys that are in the first century, for all these Jews that are gathered, it's actually pretty important, kind of a cool little piece that God adds onto this, because remember that how many were saved at the end of Peter's message? 3,000, right? That's, that's a ton of people, all right? That's a ton of people. And this was the f- harvest of the first apostolic message, the first gospel presentation God brings in a harvest on Pentecost Sunday. So it was by no accident, of course, that God does that. So disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on that Pentecost Sunday. And then Luke records for us that a great and powerful wind fills the room and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in different languages, languages unknown to them. They don't know them. But the Jews that have come in for this festival because... It was one of the three festivals. Pentecost was one of the three festivals where all Jews had to come in to be able to celebrate. So they're all gathered together to celebrate this festival. So they're hearing in their native language, the where they've come from. So they've all come in to Jerusalem from different areas. And we read that in the text. And so they're hearing it in their own language. But some of the Jews start to kind of write it off. 
right? They're like, oh, these guys, they're just drunk. They're, they're no, this isn't, that's not, this is just crazy. They're just mumbling, right? And I appreciate um, what one commentator says as Peter kind of gets up. I, I love what he says. He says, notice that the speaking in tongues actually stops when Peter begins to preach. Because here's the thing, God isn't going to work against what he's trying to do in this moment. God is trying to do something very specific in this moment, and he's not going to let tongues contradict what he wants to do about bringing salvation to these people, right? So there's another thing that I want us to understand, that in Greek, there's four different words for teaching, okay? The first one is didache, and this literally means teaching, and it's an explanation of the facts that are presented. In fact, in the Gospels, uh, when Jesus teaches, this is the word that's most often used, Jesus didache. Um, and I love this because uh, if you catch in the Gospels, this is one of my favorite things, is when Jesus teaches, the people always walk away like, man, he taught with such authority, such power. And I always kind of feel real bad for, I know I probably shouldn't because Jesus always rebuked them, but I kind of feel bad for the religious leaders right? Because they're over there and they're like, uh, they, they hear somebody coming back praising Jesus. Oh, wow. I mean, you got to think about these guys. They have trained their whole life to be a teacher, a rabbi. They spent years studying Torah to be able to explain it, to be able to teach it. And in comes this carpenter from a country town up in the north. And everybody's like, wow, he teaches with such authority. It's kind of like, you guys, you, I'm sure you've heard this, right? The bless your little heart. That's kind of what I feel, right? I feel like it's like, oh, Rabbi Benjamin, yeah, your, your message is really good, but bless your little heart. Jesus is, is, I mean, he teaches with authority, right? So I love that we get to look at this idea of teaching, that this is who Jesus is. Now, another type of teaching is called periclesis, and this is exhortation. So it's helping people understand the application and how that teaching impacts your life. Another one is homilia, and it's any teaching regarding the Christian life specifically. This is, again, what we see in the Greek New Testament. And finally, the one that we're going to kind of focus in on today is kerygma. And kerygma literally means a herald's announcement. Okay, so at the time of the first century, whenever the Caesar or any other king was going to make an announcement, instead of him actually going and giving that announcement, of course, he would send his heralds. And so they would go into the city and they would make the proclamation about whatever the Caesar or whatever the king is. And so this is the same kind of idea that kerygma style of teaching carries with itself, that this is the announcement of what the king is saying. And faithful biblical teaching takes on elements of all four of these, right? But primarily throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see that this kerygma style is what the apostles use, including Paul and Peter specifically. It's announcing the good news of Jesus. Now, there are some similarities uh, in, the, in all of the messages that are kerygma messages. And C.H. Dodd, a theologian, he says that there are six. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you six today, all right? I'm just going to give you three. Are you okay with that? We're just going to look at three of these things that I think we can find similarity in, but I think are extremely important for us to understand. Okay, so the first one is this. The first truth of the apostolic teaching is that they recognized the urgency of the message. Now, when Peter is quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel, 
He's prophesying and he's telling uh, this idea of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, everywhere in the prophets, whenever this is used, there's super ominous and foreboding language because the Old Testament prophets saw this as a day of extreme judgment. Uh, some of you guys maybe are, are young enough that, I mean, are, are, are my age and you understand this. This maybe happened to you. Whenever I was younger and uh, my mom was primarily at home with us kids and we would do something wrong, there were these words that were terrifying. Some of you already know what they are, aren't you? You're nodding your heads like you do. They, they were terrifying. You just wait till your dad gets home. Oh, man, that would just stop you in your tracks, right? Oh, because dad was the disciplinarian. Dad, I mean, listen, I'm, you're probably better parents. My dad used the switch on us, all right? Spare the rod, spoil the child, you know? That was like his motto, I think. I'm pretty sure it was on his switch whenever, you know, we'd go to it, all right? But that's what I think of when I think of this great and glorious day of the Lord. It's the idea that God is going to call account for everything that we have done. And this is what the prophets are speaking of. You're going to be called account for everything that you have done. So it's a, it's a fearful day, right? And the day's coming when God really will do that. Everyone is going to be called to account for their lives. But as Christians, we're not filled with fear. We're filled with hope. In fact, that is what it's called. When we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and he makes everything right, it's called the great Christian hope. Because we get excited about the day that he's going to make all things right. He's going to make everything the way it's supposed to be because he is our victorious and conquering king. And the church, the early church, believed this could happen at any moment. And so the message had an urgency to it. There was an urgency to the missionary messages. And I just want to say this. I think we as the church, we've lost that sense of urgency. We've lost this idea that at any moment the Lord could return. And so we kind of get, we get kind of cavalier. We get kind of relaxed. And the friends that we have, the family that we have, the coworkers that we have that we know do not know Jesus. Instead of having the urgency to share the gospel with them, we get a little bit relaxed. That's okay. I'll just do it tomorrow. But what if the Lord doesn't tarry? What if the Lord decides to come back now? We have to take up this urgency. We need to live in this urgency that Peter and the apostles had. The second truth to the apostolic teaching is that they recognize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the climax of God's redemptive story. So from Peter's message, along with Paul a little bit later and some of the addresses that he's going to have in Acts, it's clear that the apostles saw the person and work of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament narrative. Look back at verse 23 as Peter's kind of explaining how Jesus, this man, is what the scripture says, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Peter is trying to make it clear that the people that God knew this was going to happen. He was trying to make it clear that he knew this was going to happen. In fact, it was God's plan for Jesus to die. Please hear me say this. The entire witness of the scriptures, the entire Bible points to Jesus. It's all about him. I actually love how William Barclay says it. He says, the cross 
was a window in time allowing us to see the suffering love which is eternally in the heart of God. I'm going to read that one more time. The cross was a window in time allowing us to see the suffering love which is eternally in the heart of God. So the entire message of the Bible points to this central act, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, all of the law, all the prophets, from the moment that the garden, that the, the sin enters the garden, to the day of atonement that we see in Leviticus, all of it is pointing. I love how Tim said that earlier. All of it is pointing, as we talked about communion, all of it is pointing to this moment, Jesus' death on the cross. The final truth of apostolic teaching saw the resurrection as critical. Even more than the death of Jesus, the resurrection was the center of the gospel message. I mean, just think about these men who are proclaiming it. Think about these men who are preaching, these apostles who are preaching. Remember what they did? They were fishermen. Luke makes it very clear. They're untrained, uneducated men. What in the world would make them so bold, so committed to this, that they would be able to preach this and, and know that they could possibly die for it? They saw a dead man alive again. Jesus' resurrection is what emboldens these guys from being fishermen to becoming the bold preachers that they are. See, it all hinges on the resurrection. Listen to Paul's strong language in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Just stop for a second and think about that. If the resurrection isn't true, Paul says, then your faith is useless. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. In this last part, verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul says that the very message of the apostles is useless without the resurrection. It's literally the linchpin of the gospel message. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I'm just going to ask this, what are we even doing here? Why are we here? There's no reason for us to gather together. The resurrection is absolutely crucial and important. And we've got to understand that. In fact, we should be pitied if it's not. It, and a lot of people may pity us. They may look at us and think that we're foolish because we believe that a dead man was raised. But it is the reason that we gather together. So how do the people respond to the message? What do they do? So they respond in three ways. I think they're ways that we should also respond in. So let's look at them together. First one, they repented of their sin. Now, I want to stop, talk very carefully about this because I, I listen to a lot of different podcasts, I read a lot of different articles, and there's something that I see creeping into the church that I think is very, very dangerous. And it's this idea that Jesus didn't die for sin. Um, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, Jesus, the reason he died is because he confronted religious leaders. Um, it's because he, you know, he, he disrupted the status quo. 
It's because he wanted to, you know, keep the, the, the marginalized and the poor. He wanted to, to not let them be marginalized and poor anymore. And, and while I think that part of Jesus' message in the kingdom of God is about the marginalized and the poor, we cannot, we cannot let sin be taken out of the message of the gospel because if it is, then there's no good news. I mean, just think about this. If the message is what we, they are saying hey, Jesus, you know, he died because he confronted religious leaders and the authority and they didn't like it. And then what's the message? Just be good? Because if that's the message, guess what? That's the message that we've heard our whole lives. It's no different than any other message. It's not good news then. It's just news, right? The good news is that Jesus died for our sin. So this isn't even ideas that the scripture attests to. The whole testament of scripture talks about sin. We were separated from God and there's nothing that we could do. We couldn't attempt to keep the law. That's the book of Romans. We couldn't keep the law. There's nothing we could do to restore our relationship with God. And I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. But God. I'm just going to stop there because those are some of the greatest words we can ever hear, right? Um, I used to say something in student ministry whenever we'd get to this, I'd say, I, I like big butts, right? And this is a big butt right here. <laughs> Thank you, all right. Some people got that one. Some people got that one, right? This, this is a big butt because it says, but God, and listen to the rest of it. It's so beautiful, and I just, it just wanted to sink in for us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Man, that's just so powerful, so good. So the first response that people had and that we should have to the apostles' message is to repent of our sin. This means that we agree with God about our sin. We recognize, God, what I have done is evil in your eyes. It's offended you. It's offensive to you. And I want to turn back to your way. So that's literally what repentance means. I always, again, I'm such a student and kids pastor. This means we're going this direction. We're going our own way. But we recognize that this is offense to God and we turn back to his way. That's what repentance literally means. It means to do a U-turn, right? So we need to repent over our sin. And I just want to ask you this question. When's the last time you really repented over your sin? When's the last time you were really broken and grieved for the things that break God's heart that you do? As a church, we need to be broken over our sin. The second thing is that they received the Holy Spirit. The second response is that they received him, right? They received the Holy Spirit. You see, salvation in Jesus wasn't just about, wasn't just about taking something away, taking our sin away, but it was about him giving something as well. God gives us his spirit. And there's something distinct in Acts chapter 2 versus all the times where we see the Spirit. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and He would rest on the people. He would come and He would empower them for a specific task or a specific situation. But here we see He fills them. The Spirit indwells the believer. I used to say all the time in student ministry, I'd say, hey, what's the greatest gift that God has ever given us. And undeniably, whether it was kids or it was students, they would always answer, salvation. And I'd be like, wrong, 
Just joking, I didn't say that harshly, right? No, I would kindly say, no, 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 no. The greatest gift that he gives us is his spirit. He gives us his spirit. Jesus, God himself, lives inside of us. And he convicts us of our sin, how gracious and good. He shows us how to love, how gracious and good, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That's the incredible gift that God gives. And the third thing, he reoriented their identity. So finally, the people respond in this way. There's been a lot of discussion and argument about the the nature of baptism in the church. Um, And obviously, we hold it in high esteem, even here, community fellowship. It's an ordinance of the church, which means that Jesus said that we should continue to do it. So that's why we do it, right? There are some people that believe it's part of salvation. That's not what Peter is saying here. And I want to kind of show you why. Instead, uh, what we have to understand about baptism in the early church is that it is how people identified themselves with the Jesus movement. So to help you understand this, I want to kind of explain a little bit about the early church baptism process. So here's what would happen. Many of those who were wanting to profess faith in Jesus would be catechized. And I just want to stop there because I know that that word might be a little bit loaded for some of you, especially if you're coming from Catholic backgrounds, right? Catechism, you might go, oh, that dreadful time where it was call and response and call and response. But this was a little bit different because what would happen is that the apostles or some of the early church leaders, they would take those who were trying to understand what it meant to have faith in Jesus, and they would make sure that they understood exactly what the message was that was being presented. And so they would kind of go back to the very beginning, and they would talk about how sin entered the world, how Jesus had to come and die for sin, Jesus rose again, all these different things, so that they could understand this is what you're becoming part of. You're becoming part of a group that believes in what Jesus has done. Then, after they'd gone through this process, essentially wearing just like a white undergarment, they would go into the water and they would be baptized. But this is what's really important about understanding this. That would be embarrassing in the first place if you're just wearing a white undergarment going into the water, right? All of us know that. But if any legalistic Jew or any Roman came by and saw this, that could mean instant death. So to be baptized, to become part of this Jesus movement, you understood, I am identifying with Jesus, I'm identifying with this Jesus community, and I want to align myself with them, even if it means that I die. I believe this so much that I'm willing to die for this. I love what Paul says in Romans. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, baptism could mean death, but it definitely definitely signified the new life that you were born into, a new identity that you were taking on, that you are a Jesus person, that you wanted to follow him. They're leaving that old life to follow in Jesus's new way. Let me ask this question. Have you left that old life? Can you clearly see that there is a new person that God has created in you. So where are we this morning as a church? Are we on the team? 
but not really playing on the field? Are we riding the bench when God is wanting us to get in the game? Are we living in the urgency that Christ could come back at any moment and those around us will be judged? Are we deeply broken over our sin, asking the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts back to him? Do we find our identity in him? I pray that each of us would be so overwhelmed by the amazing grace of the gospel again this morning that we would live in the power of the early church. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the witness and the testimony of the early church. God, the apostles filled with your spirit, emboldened to share the truth of the gospel. That you sent your son to die for our sin so that we can be in a relationship with you, God, the living God, and have a life that is full and meaningful. And you've given us a new identity. I pray that as a church, we would be committed to this gospel message, to share it with those around us that need it, that are desperately in need of the hope that only Jesus can give. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful to be a part of your community, to be a part of your people. God, convict us, move us to do what you would desire for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. If you have questions about this week's message or would like to start a conversation with someone about what it means to walk with Christ, please email pastor at cfeb.church. You can find earlier episodes of our podcast on our website at cfeb.church, where you can also give online to help support community fellowship in our mission to reflect and share Christ's love. We can also be found on many major distribution platforms like Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe to stay connected. Thank you again for listening. Now go out and love one another like Jesus did.